This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Electrum. We here at the Word of the Week consider ourselves traditionalists. We're not quite grognards, mind you, but we don't intend to discuss that term again lest we once again get distracted and end up trying to connect the creation of D&D with the history of rock and roll and the Napoleonic Wars. Sometimes these scripts go in directions even we don't foresee. Now, the thing with gamers is that we get into a lot of weird arguments, and we take a lot of weird things seriously. And because, as we mentioned previously when our introduction ended up consuming our entire episode, there have been a lot of different versions of our favorite game. And as things change, some gamers cheer the progress, while others decry the loss of the traditional. And today's word is at the center of a minor argument between traditionalists and progressives that no one really paid much attention to. Except us. It was the argument over Electrum. See, among the many, many things that Dungeons & Dragons has helped to standardize across the fantasy gaming world is a generic currency system that you can cram into your pseudo-medieval world with no muss and no fuss and no silly imaginary currency names like Gil or Rupe or Galleons or Pokebucks or Zorkmids or whatever. Seriously, those are all things. Basically, it's the gold standard of currency systems. Literally, it's based on the gold coin. Or rather, it's usually based on the gold, silver, and copper coin. And it's usually based on easy conversion factors like 100 copper coins to 10 silver coins to 1 gold coin. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's intuitive, easy to remember, and quick to convert between units. And that's exactly what you want from such a minor game element. Dungeons & Dragons doesn't just use three standard coins. It uses four or five. And that last part, the four or five part, is the crux of the non-argument that a very small number of gamers care one way or the other about. The only reason we care about it is because we think everyone is arguing about the wrong coin. But we'll get to that. As far back as Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition, there were five coins. And we should note that D&D refers to its coins as pieces. Hence, you had copper pieces, silver pieces, electrum pieces, gold pieces, and platinum pieces. And that's in order of increasing value. We should also note that the original conversions weren't nice, even powers of 10. There were 10 copper pieces to the silver piece, right? But there were 20 silver pieces to the gold piece. And that's because between gold and silver, there was this electrum piece. And that thing was worth half a gold piece or ten silver pieces. And the platinum piece was worth five gold pieces. It was all kind of a pain. And it didn't help that D&D's designers kept changing things. In second edition, for example, it was ten silver pieces to a gold piece. But it was also two electrum pieces to a gold piece. So electrum pieces were worth five silver pieces. And then in third edition, electrum pieces vanished and everything else became powers of ten. 10 copper pieces to silver, 10 silvers to a gold, 10 golds to a platinum. Which is nice, streamlined, easy to remember, and awful. Because what happened to poor benighted Electrum? 4th edition snubbed Electrum again, but added an even more powerful denomination, the Astral Diamond, worth 10,000 gold pieces. And there was a great hue and cry among, literally, a dozen of us during the lead-up to 5th edition demanding the return of the Electrum piece. And there were, of course, a dozen others of us sneering at that idea. 
And then there was another dozen or so of us who were asking, just what the heck is Electrum anyway? Okay, we admit that we didn't hang out on the most exciting internet forums, but we were passionate about the ones we were hanging out on. And we knew something that a lot of gamers had forgotten. We knew what Electrum was, and why it had been included in the first place, and why, of all the coins in D&D, it was not only traditional, it was the most traditional. And we also knew something else. There was a coin on the list, one that no one ever questioned, that had absolutely no place in D&D. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. To understand why Electrum deserves some respect, we have to go back a long time. A long, long time. And since we're already going back a long way, we might as well go back to the beginning and talk about why money even exists. After all, money gets a bad rap these days. But without money, a lot of things we take for granted wouldn't exist. The concept of money actually goes back 10,000 years or more. We aren't really sure how old it is, but it seems to predate even agrarian civilization. Well, sort of. But it didn't really take off until civilization started really hopping. The idea of money starts with the idea of trading stuff. So, let's say I am a Neolithic human, and I have a very good hunt, and I have ended up with more meat than I actually need. But during the hunt, my favorite flint-tipped spear fell in a tar pit. Meanwhile, you had a terrible hunt. You didn't get any meat. And your friend was stomped to death by a mammoth. But you did retrieve his spear. And now you have two spears. And now we are gathered around the campfire talking about our days. And you suddenly realize there is an easy solution to your situation. No, it's not holding me at spear point with both your spears until I agree to give you my meat. You trade with me. You give me the extra spear you don't need for the extra meat I don't need. It's called trade. Actually, it's called barter. And it was vitally important to the growth of civilization. It meant that members of a tribe could pool their resources in useful ways, and members of the tribe could benefit each other. It meant that surpluses didn't go to waste, and that deficiencies were easier to survive. Moreover, it meant that tribes had ways to interact with each other symbiotically. Two rival tribes of roughly equal physical might could engage in beneficial exchanges instead of costly battles for resources. And you can imagine how all of these things might be a boon to an up-and-coming sentient species of social animals. But barter has some weaknesses. I might have lots of extra meat today, but that meat isn't going to be good forever. But if there's nothing worth trading that meat for right now, say I have all the spears I need, then I might as well just let it rot. Or I might trade it for a flint-tipped spear or knife that I don't need today, because the knife isn't going to go bad in a few days. I can trade the knife later to someone who needs it for something I do need. And that is exactly what Stone Age people did. There is archaeological evidence that the first money that humans ever used was, in fact, flint knives. And that introduced two concepts that are pretty much central to the definition of money. Those flint knives were durable, they'd stick around for a long time, and they were something that lots of people were willing to trade for. They had an agreed-upon intrinsic value. 
economists generally agree that there are three basic functions for money. First, it serves as a medium of exchange. People are willing to trade stuff for money. Second, it serves as a measure of value. People agree that a certain amount of money is worth a certain amount of stuff, so prices can be set. Third, money serves as a store of value. That is, money can be saved and stored and held onto until it's needed, and its value won't change too drastically in the meantime. Of course, economists also agree that a good system of money needs to be durable. It won't rot and portable. It's easy to carry and divisible. It's something you can spread around. Eventually, ancient people gave up on the flint knife thing and started looking for other things to use as a medium of exchange. In around about 1200 BCE, around the Pacific and Indian Oceans and in China, as well as in some parts of Africa, people started to use an item that was pretty, that occurred naturally, but that was also scarce enough to make it valuable. This was the first form of commodity money, and it took the form of cowrie shells. Cowrie shells are the shells of a variety of marine gastropods, including mollusks and sea snails. They generally have a translucent mother-of-pearl sheen and a central oval opening where the shell folds in on itself. And this appearance is also how they got their Italian name, porcelana, from which the word porcelain is derived. And the reason for that name is, um, a little delicate. See, porcelana comes from the Latin word for pig and fold. And the shells are named that because someone decided those shells looked like um, the private parts of a lady pig. But we digress. Around about 1000 BCE, as the Bronze Age was becoming all the rage and copper and bronze were becoming more common, the Chinese realized they could do better by manufacturing their own calorie shells out of such metals. And those imitation shells, often with holes so they could be strung together, formed the first proto-coins. In other areas, metal tools became a common medium of exchange. And then around 650 BCE, in Lydia, a kingdom in present-day Turkey, a revolution happened. See, the problem with flint knives and cowries and iron tools and bronze shells is that anyone could make them. Or find them. If you needed money, you just had to go swimming for shells or make a knife. Beyond that, no one really agreed on what they were worth. This stuff was all just a sort of middle point for barter. And that meant the value of the money was really uncertain. And in Asia Minor, Northern Africa, and around the Aegean Sea, something big was happening. Civilizations were starting to trade with each other. Someone needed to come up with a stable monetary system if this trade thing was ever going to catch on. Now, in the city of Ephesus, they had started to turn up this rare precious metal that was a yellowish color. The metal wasn't easy to find. It had to be sifted from rivers or mined from rock ores. But it was malleable and ductile. It could be shaped easily and stamped with a symbol. And thus, King Croesus of Lydia became the first ruler to mint coins. Each circular disc of precious metal was of a standard size and weight, and it was stamped with a symbol to ensure that it was of standard size and weight. No one had to wonder if the coin was a little big or a little small, or made out of imitation metal. Each coin weighed about 0.16 ounces, 
so 100 coins weighed one pound. And each coin was worth one-third of a standard value called a stator. And that standard value, the stator, was how much a soldier was paid in one month. The Lydians also minted larger and smaller coins, including the one stator coin and the sixth of a stator hecti. Coin minting opened up whole new possibilities for the up-and-coming civilization on the go. One of the most important was that it allowed the governments and temples to collect contributions from citizens to finance projects for the benefits of all, such as supporting a military. The Greeks, Persians, Macedonians, and later the Romans all fell in love with a minted coin. And what was that yellowish metal that the Lydians adopted for their coins? Well, we know it today by its Greek name. The Greeks named it because of its yellowish color. And they called it electron, which was their word for amber. We call it electrum. Electrum is an alloy, a mixture of two metals. It's a mixture of silver and gold, and the reason they used electrum is because it was too dang hard to separate the gold from the silver. The technology of the day simply didn't allow for the refinement of pure silver and pure gold. And pure gold and pure silver were too rare for use as money. Electrum was easier to find. Of course, we're actually lucky there's any gold and silver on Earth at all. At least any we can find. And believe it or not, for a long time, scientists were trying to figure out where the gold on Earth even came from. But to understand why that's an issue, you have to understand where gold actually does come from. See, gold doesn't form on Earth. Well, actually, very few elements form on Earth. And the few that do are the result of atoms of other elements literally falling apart. That's called radioactive decay. All of the elements on Earth formed in space. Specifically, they formed in the hearts of ancient stars. And then those stars exploded. A star is, of course, a massive nuclear reaction in space. Stars start out as clouds of naturally occurring hydrogen gas drifting through the universe. And hydrogen is pretty much the only naturally occurring thing in the universe that can drift through space. Well, that and the dust made of other dead stars. But let's keep this simple. When you get enough hydrogen together in one spot and you get really lucky, the cloud's own gravity might cause it to collapse in on itself. And the hydrogen atoms, under the influence of the gravity, rush together toward the center of the cloud. As they do so, they heat up. And when they collide, they fuse into atoms of helium. The energy they release drives other hydrogen atoms to fuse, and the chain reaction ignites a self-sustaining nuclear fusion reaction. As the star burns, it gradually turns all of its hydrogen into helium. The bigger the star, the faster it burns through its fuel. And once the star is out of hydrogen, one of two things might happen. If the star is small, relatively, it fizzles out. Well, sort of. It actually goes through a period of expansion driven by the collapse of its core becoming a red giant. And then eventually it fizzles out and dies. But if the star is massive, the gravitational forces and heat might be strong enough to start smashing the helium together into other, heavier elements. And those elements smash together into still other elements. And as the star begins forming heavier and heavier elements, it becomes increasingly unstable. The star is on borrowed time. 
Now, there are a number of ways this story can end, but the most spectacular is called a supernova. What happens is that the star eventually fuses a bunch of elements together into heavy, dense, incredibly stable iron. And that's pretty much the end of what a star can do fusion-wise. And that iron gathers into a solid metal core at the heart of the star. And when enough of the iron has gathered at the heart of the star, the nuclear fusion ceases. The star stops burning. And then gravity takes over. All of the remaining stuff in the star, the gases and other elements, they all collapse in on the core. And they gain tremendous speed under the massive gravitational pull. And all of that stuff slams into the solid iron core and then rebounds off into space. Clang and kaboom. And all of those elements are blown off into space as if the star exploded. But now you know that a supernova isn't a star exploding. It's the rebound from the star collapsing. Everything in the universe that isn't stars is made of the shrapnel from supernova. You, me, planets, moons, everything. That's how everything in the universe came to exist. So once upon a time, the Earth was a cloud of stellar debris. Actually, the whole solar system was. And eventually, a clump of that debris started to collapse in on itself and spiral in on itself. And it heated up as it did and became a molten mass spinning in space. And then gradually it cooled and solidified. All the heaviest stuff settled in the center. The lightest stuff drifted to the outside. And that is why scientists were not sure why there was any gold to be found near the surface of the earth. Because the core of the earth is iron. And gold is heavier than iron. It should have settled into the core five billion years ago when Earth was a molten blob of star corpse. Well, about eight years ago, Dr. Matthias Wilbold and his team at the University of Oxford studied a massive quantity of four billion year old rocks collected from Greenland to verify a theory that had been floating around in the scientific community for a while. Very fortunately, Around four billion years ago, the Earth was luckily bombarded by 20 billion, billion tons, yes, billions of billions of tons, of asteroids containing all sorts of heavy metals and minerals. And this stuff became part of the mantle of the Earth, the layer just under the crust, where it was churned around and gradually incorporated into the core of the Earth. And if not for that, we'd have almost no useful metals near the surface for us to mine and turn into coins. Pretty amazing, huh? But getting back to Electrum. Electrum became the standard for metal coins for hundreds of years. Eventually, the Greeks got pretty good at refining silver, and silver coins became the standard. But Electrum remained in circulation for some time thereafter. They lost popularity, though, because it was hard to verify how much silver and gold any given lump of electrum had in it. But generally, because of the gold content, Lydian electrum coins were usually worth about 10 times the value of a similarly sized Greek silver coin. Eventually, the Romans imitated the Greeks, adopting silver for their coins. And then when Rome collapsed, so did minted currency. It wasn't around until 700 CE that minted coins made a return. In the Middle East and in the Byzantine Empire, gold became the standard metal for such coins. 
In the Frankish kingdoms in Central Europe, they continued to use silver. So, if we want to be very picky about our fantasy currencies, we can argue that silver and gold coins should definitely form the standard. And we, specifically we at the Word of the Week, argue that there should be a lot of electrum in circulation because electrum is the precursor to gold and silver money. And the world of Dungeons and Dragons is filled with the remains of ancient civilizations that are constantly being plundered for treasure. For the same reason, we accept bronze or copper coins. And wouldn't it be interesting if electrum and copper coins were only found in ancient treasure hoards, where most modern fantasy civilizations only use gold and silver? But the one thing that absolutely doesn't belong in D&D... Well, we submit it's time to get rid of platinum. Platinum coins are actually a very modern idea. Platinum is not nearly as ductile and malleable as gold and silver. It's hard to work. It wasn't until the 1800s that anyone made any real effort to mint platinum coins. In the 1820s, the British Royal Mint experimented with platinum coins, but the experiment didn't last. Beyond that, between 1828 and 1845, the Russian Empire briefly experimented with a standard platinum coin. But again, it was given up and platinum coins weren't minted by any government again until the modern era, mainly to commemorate specific events. However, platinum did briefly cause a problem for the Spaniards when they colonized Central and South America. See, platinum and gold have very similar weights. And in the Spanish Americas, various gold veins also contained abundant platinum. So abundant, in fact, that the platinum was actually valued substantially less than the gold but clever counterfeiters discovered they could mix the precious gold with worthless platinum to make apparently gold coins of the proper weight using only a fraction of the gold. In the 1780s, by royal decree, the Spaniards began confiscating massive amounts of platinum which they then had thrown into the ocean. And so, we traditionalists here at the Word of the Week humbly suggest that maybe we leave poor Electrum alone. It's not just traditional it's pretty much the most traditional. It was the first real money that existed, and that deserves a place at the gaming table. And meanwhile, we can throw out all the worthless platinum if we want to simplify things. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.